Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst, and we are 32 days away from our last stand, perhaps. But happy day one of the president's quarantine. What an October surprise. Just when you think nothing weirder, weirder could possibly happen, but also it's actually quite logical, the White House announced that Donald and Melania have COVID-19. We can discuss what this might mean to the election. I know some of you wonder if this is even true. I was on late night Twitter with you last night. Wild thoughts, man. A little bit too much wine for some of you. <laughs> but before we dive into any of that, can I just say one very simple thing? We have to stay focused. The polls close in 32 days and nine hours. We cannot control what Trump says about his medical condition or anything else he does for that matter. It does not appear anybody can, to be fair. Nor do we control what the corporate media says about this Shakespearean tragic comedy, or maybe it's just a comic tragedy, or just plain poetic justice, or cause and effect, you know, logic. We can control the work we and our allies do. You can join me if you like in saying, great job, Joe Biden, for the Biden campaign's decision to start knocking on doors to make sure everybody votes. Welcome to the campaign, Joe Biden. But let's not let this passing circus distract us from the job at hand, which doesn't mean we can't enjoy the elephant show, of course. Someone has to sweep up after this parade. It might as well be us. It should be us. If Biden breezes into the White House, and he thinks he will, with an AstroTurf primary and a general, well, look at us. We've been organizing, and the movements are only growing. What better way to get moving on day one? So let's start with the various conspiracy theories. Honestly, I am not, I am not sold on the idea that there is a plot here. Some of you probably know about Occam's razor, the idea that simple, the simple explanation is most likely to be the correct one. Well, the simple explanation is that Donald Trump is a narcissist. He denied the worst pandemic in 100 years, paraded recklessly before large crowds, spurned basic safety rules, including masks and distancing, mocked those who abided by these rules, and knowingly lied about the dangers. His allies overseas caught COVID early. His friends here also caught it. Herman Cain died. Then naturally, he caught the virus, along with his wife and senior staff member Hope Hicks. That is the simple explanation. If given all that you are still a conspiracy theorist, consider these arguments in favor of my simple view. Number one, Trump does not want to look weak. Getting sick is weak, at least in Trump world. He said it himself. Number two, he does not want to acknowledge his failure in handling COVID. He says it's because he doesn't want to create panic. But we know it's about keeping his base believing his alternative reality, his alternative facts. Hard to imagine a bigger symbol of failure than infecting the White House. Number three, he needs to be on the campaign trail and on camera. Maybe he'll zoom from his sickbed, who knows, but it really suits him to be out there talking to folks, putting on a parade, and of course the circus following him around. He needs that base excited. That is number four. He needs to be exciting his base. Trump and his team see their strength in speaking to the base at these rallies. These rallies indoors. These rallies without any masks to be seen. These rallies in swing states like Wisconsin and Florida where he was supposed to have rallies this week. They're also peaking when it comes to 
COVID. Number five, a rebound from COVID would take weeks, but people are voting now. If he sticks to a 14-day quarantine, he won't emerge until October 16th. A record number of ballots beyond anything history could predict are being cast now, already in. There are fewer undecided, undecideds now, but of course it doesn't matter if, if, you know, that might not matter at all, especially in swing states. But this is a critical time to swing those voters and create more momentum, which seems to be moving in Biden's favor. As Biden grows his momentum, and it will only grow because Trump is not on the trail, Trump's momentum will logically diminish because he is the biggest campaigner for his own campaign. And if he's locked up, he can't campaign. I don't understand why he would want to do that. Inshallah, as Joe Biden said at the debate, to the considerable joy of many voters of Arab descent who form a considerable group in the swing state of Michigan, we love him. One other factor to consider in this mix it is true the first debate did not go well for Trump. It is still a leap to think canceling the two remaining debates would be good for him. Biden got through the, that first debate in one piece by the skin of his teeth. Trump tried to knock him out in debate one and failed. Putting in the martial arts imagery Trump thinks in, he still failed. So odds are he wants another shot. All of which is to say it's a huge leap to venture down that conspiracy route. But have at it, if you like, get it out of your system. You know, I know what's happening on Twitter. But bottom line, I don't think that this is something that Trump wanted, the Trump campaign wanted. Their whole goal in the last few weeks is to be, to be excite the base and move whatever swing voters and, of course, depress uh, likely voters for Joe Biden. Good luck at that. Meanwhile, we have a wonderful show for you today. We have Vicki Osterwell. She is the author of In Defense of Looting, A History of Uncivil Action. Needless to say, this is a controversial stance across the board. She's been getting attacks from the right, Brett Stevens, the centrists, and a few people even on the left. We will go deep in with her to understand her view uh, that sanctifying property over people is another artifact of racial oppression. And later for our panel, we have Javanka Beckles and Jamie Peck. But first, let's look at the stories at the top of my newsfeed. COVID, clearly the top story. President Trump confirmed late Thursday night, very late Thursday night, uh, that he and the First Lady have tested positive for coronavirus. Meanwhile, Vice President Biden and Jill Biden, who wore masks the other day, uh, most of the time except on stage, have tested negative. Trump's campaign will be postponed while the president quarantines and recovers. Maybe. There is more COVID news. Amazon reported that 19,816 of its workers at Amazon and Whole Foods divisions have been infected in the pandemic. The company has boomed through online shopping, as we know, while others have suffered. Warehouse and delivery staff became frontline workers. Chris Smalls, of course, has highlighted this work and it is turned into a movement. But Amazon argues that the infection rate for its 1.3 million workers was actually low compared to the country overall. But the company has rejected requests for more detailed data by individual warehouses or even by community or state. Amazon workers have walked out in a number of locations to protest conditions and at least 10 employees have died of COVID-19. Oh, and remember, the wealth of owner Jeff Bezos, the wealthiest man in the world, has increased by 
billions of dollars this year while everybody else has suffered. There's more voter suppression by the GOP. The Republican governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, declared that no more than one absentee ballot drop-off location would be allowed per county. Texas's Harris County had already begun to use a dozen ballot collection sites to serve its four million people. So just stop here for a moment and think about this. Harris County is the third largest county in America. It is bigger than half of the states. It includes Houston. There's only one possible motivation for saying that a jurisdiction that large should have just one location to drop off your ballot. That explanation, of course, is voter suppression. This is how the Republicans operate. It may seem like a small administrative action that doesn't get picked up in the media, but its goal is clear. Hillary Clinton won Harris County by 12 points in 2016. What if Biden could do even better? Right now, the numbers are showing record drop-off ballots across the country, record mail-in ballots, record early voting. So my guess is he probably would do better. The Democratic dream of flipping Texas blue might actually be within reach this year. And Governor Abbott knows this, and he will do anything he can to heed that off. Okay, on with our show. I said yesterday we would encourage a diversity of ideas. In defense of looting is surely one of those, and I'll bet it'll break your mind. And I'm gonna actually ask questions like Joe Rogan. I, I'm 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 sensitive to it, I'm open to it. Uh, probably more than most, but I also want to ask tough questions so that we are armed uh, to to discuss these things with the Joe Biden supporters out there who, the loyalists, I should say, who are still calling out protesters. The more you know, eh? And then later we will be back. We will be on with uh, Javanka Beckles and Jamie Peck to discuss coalition building on the feminist left. Be back right after this. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I'm really excited about this conversation because I love when folks introduce, well, not really introduce ideas, but reintroduce ideas to the mainstream and blow every faction's brains like they can't process the idea of their reality and, and, and their narratives being broken. Um, Vicki Osterwell is the author of In Defense of Looting, A Riotous History of Uncivil Action. In Defense of Looting is a history of violent protests sparking social change, a compelling reframing of revolutionary activism and a practical vision for a dramatically restructured society. Vicki, thank you for joining us. Oh, you're on mute. Darn Zooms. Of course, it's classic. Thank you so much for having me. We're six months into the quarantine. I still can't press the button. Hi. <laughs> Listen, I do it every day, so, yeah. so I should know better. Um, okay, so I I think having this conversation now, I mean, especially as voting is underway with a president now supposedly in quarantine, um, with the debates the first debate having been done, uh, Biden astroturfing his way to hopefully a victory, I guess. Um, you had mentioned that you don't believe justice will be found on the in the ballot box. Can you explain that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, on the one hand, we are obviously facing um, the a, a crisis for the constitutional system as it has been, you know, as it has existed since the Civil War um, that is sort of threatened by Trump. But yeah, I don't think that I don't think that that any reforms um, can actually transform uh, th that come through voting can actually transform the, the fundamental anti-blackness and white supremacy of the system. So the system is, I mean, built literally on what you just said. There's, it's built on white supremacy. Our police forces are, even in the government, being, I've said this over and over on the show, the FBI is investigating police departments across the country for white supremacy, organizing cells within the police department. Of course, the police was set up to to basically control slaves. So just what you're saying here, that, that element has been left out of the narrative. But then the other aspect you bring up is that, that looting is a form of social justice. Can you explain? Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that's been interesting about, as you said, breaking everyone's brain with this take is that we just lived through um, one of the largest uprisings in American history, which saw looting occurring in every major city and many, many minor cities in the country. Um, so I think what upset people was that anyone would defend it and make an argument for it, because clearly a lot of people are doing it. Um, so it's so it's an it's it's a it's a tactic that immediately appeals to people as a way for striking back against the police um, and uh, in in the face of their terrorism and their murder. Um, and the reason I argue that it does that is because it gets to the history of the intersection of uh, whiteness, property, and the police, which are all reinforcing um, reinforcing ideas, reinforcing uh, re. Uh, you know, combined forces in the United States, both historically and in the present. Um, so when folks rising up against the police and against white supremacy loot, they are directly and immediately attacking that link, and that freaks people out. So when, when you know, when this is all happening, and and we're looking at um, businesses across the com a country, small businesses start putting signs in their windows saying, you know, we support BLM, we're a small business, we're black owned, we're female, owned, whatever it is. I mean, there was like a long list. Of, they were making the case to looters like skip us, go to Walmart or right. skip us, go to like the big box stores. Um, is there really a strategy like that? Or is that something that just sort of played out naturally? Uh, no, that that happened um, in the 60s as well um, during the urban um, unrest. And often what happens is, um, you know, because people who are rioting and looting, like they live in those communities where, where it's happening and they know the businesses where, you know, it's actually a local person who like runs it. You know, they tend to know, you know, where people are exploited, where people are getting minimum wage work or getting followed by security. They live in these, in these communities. They know, they tend to know which businesses are actually malicious and which aren't. And so like, you know, maybe some of them are minority owned, but that person like lives way outside the community. And like, you know, there's, so there's, there's a lot of different tactics that go into it. And a lot of the opposition that, um, that I think liberals in particular, um, but also on the left like to provide is like, what about small businesses? But that's a dodge because hmm. the question is what is happening in this country that the police can murder black people with impunity on camera and get away. And the people who say, what about small businesses? They don't, suddenly cheer on looters in Chicago, for example, when they went down to the Magnificent Mile and attacked the Gucci and the Tesla, they weren't suddenly like, yes, this is the action I want. They're opposed to looting in general. Small businesses is a moral argument that they can make to defend themselves from it. So hmm. yes, I think that the looters and rioters, they're a part of the community. They know which businesses act more or less you know, oppressively in, in their communities and they react um, accordingly. So what is it about looting that is an actual tactic against police. Yeah, so um, 
So basically, the police exist, um, as you mentioned. Um, they sort of first form uh, around the plantation and in um, and in colonial places to basically protect white property from the threat of um, in 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 the U.S. and in the South, in particular, uh, blacks escaping black people escaping the plantation um, and therefore destroying white property. So the police have always existed to protect white property. Um, in the North, they were often mostly enforcing fugitive slave laws. They also would, uh, would, would crack down on unions. So in the present, what the police do is they protect property. Um, they protect private property. It's what they do. They don't protect people, um, which I think is, is very, very clear to anyone who's been paying attention for the last 10 years. Um, and so, um, and so, when you attack, when when you when you create a space without police, then suddenly you can have things for free, right? That's what looting demonstrates: is that in a riot zone where the police control is no longer present, you can share all of the commodities that are available in the city, all the food, all the nice things that you otherwise have no access to, become available because once the police have been pushed out, then the myth that is property and private property, as it is owned and constructed now, is revealed for what it is, um, which is just that a myth. Um, you go back to the LA riots, right? And uh, there was there were these images of of communities being pitted against each other. Um, you know, the Korean community uh, in in the magnif the, the um, I forgot what the name of the street is in LA. I can't remember, but someone's going to Central LA. Someone's going to yell at me now. Um, you know, they were out there protecting their their small businesses, and it created a a. I mean, it really pitted people against each other. Was that a media narrative, or is that? I mean, am I? You saw the imagery, well, but. Absolutely. So, so um, you know, one of the, the causing factors of, of the L.A. riots was the murder of Latasha Harland, who was a 15-year-old black girl who went into a small business, small immigrant-owned business run by a Korean woman, um, and she murdered her for stealing an orange juice, and the, the money for the orange juice was in Latasha Harland's hand. Um, and then she was let off with community service for cold-blooded murder in her business. So that was one of the causes of the L.A. riots. As a result, a lot of the conflict in L.A., um, was with Korean businesses, which tended to be the uh, small Korean business owners were very, very concentrated in South LA. But I think one of the things that's really important about the book and the argument I make is to, to look at the tactics that people use, right? So when um, when we talk about things like communal violence, right? So rioting, you know, anti-Muslim rioting in, in, in India, for example, mm -hmm. what, what rioters focus on is murdering people, hurting people, yeah. burning down private homes. In LA, there was this one, you know, there were these, these fame, a few famous gun battles between uh, Korean store owners and, and rioters, but black rioters didn't kill Korean people. That wasn't the goal of the riot. They weren't attacking maybe their businesses, but they weren't committing violence against people for the most part and and a lot of that those fights that they captured like were instigated and then it became a, an instance of of you know and in, in any case that like occasionally fights broke out but but for the most part like i think you can you can really just watch the tactics that the majority of people are doing to see the goals of the movement um that's that's present and i think what we saw in la even though um korean businesses many korean businesses were attacked um people were largely not being attacked. Um, and so the media hopped on the three big instances of people being attacked that they caught on video, right. the beating of Reginald Denny, um, very famously at an intersection, um, and that gunfight between the Korean shop owners. Yeah. Um, it was really them shooting. There wasn't anyone shooting back in that video, I think, if you look. But um, but I, I don't remember. In any case, um, yeah, so the media will, will zoom in on any interpersonal violence it can to try and paint yeah. the whole movement that way. Um, so how does this move the needle? I mean, if if we're 
in an election where uh, a good chunk of the population, even if is is not swayed by these arguments, even on the Democratic side, um, and God forbid, you know, somebody is swung by this argument. Uh, in the wrong direction in, in a key swing state, you know, as we saw in the last election, a few thousand people uh, <laughs> determined the election, not to mention a lot of people staying home. But um, Donald Trump, this seems like an argument, this is Brett Stevens's point, which I never agree with, but I'll reference it. Yeah. Uh, Brett Stevens's point was essentially that this gives, um, this is arming Donald Trump with another argument against the left. And of course, Joe Biden, basically echo that yeah absolutely um you know liberals um liberals are not very happy about this argument being made in public um but i think you know um for the for one thing i'm i'm, I'm not focused on electoral politics as since i don't think justice can come that way i also don't think that we can focus our our arguments on how it might affect a, a news cycle um but also i think one of the one of the facts of this summer was that the uprising was a huge and 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 maybe permanent blow to Trump's popularity. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the uprising was incredibly popular. and it was more popular than Trump. It was more popular than Biden. Um, and so the idea that then arguing that the uprising was good, which is, you know, I mean, my book's really a history book. like it's not really, but 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 like the you know, I was I'm just trying to think through the uprisings that we were actually living through. and by arguing yeah. on on behalf of them, these, these uprisings that are popular, the idea that that is giving Trump ammunition rather than four centuries of settler colonialism, the history of slavery, um, you know, uh, an election system that's rigged, that he loses an election by three million people and comes to power, um, just like George W. Bush before. And now even that's not enough. He's going to lose this one anyway. So he's, he's you know, already planning to do basically a de facto coup. Um, the idea that The idea that making radical arguments is ammunition for the right, right is is i think obscene frankly i i couldn't agree more um <laughs> and the fact that liberals respond to it and i mean immediately watching this stage of the debate see the things that that biden was able to get out of his mouth uh were defenses to the terms that trump was setting so it's infuriating um but how does it move the needle <laughs> well um so far i've made most of the people I don't like in this country angry, which was a very, very, which is a very happy. Um, I did not anticipate having all that power, so that was. Really Who's nice. your favorite one? Oh God, Newt Gingrich probably. Ah! Newt Gingrich getting in his feelings was pretty good. Uh, Bill Maher. Bill Maher was also very satisfying. Oh, did he? Um, did he profile this? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I can't. I um, stop watching him. I can't. I haven't. I I couldn't keep track. People keep telling me people I didn't know about, but I think Newt Gingrich was was. I was hoping it would give Henry Kissinger a stroke and he would die, and like I would have. But anyway, um, uh, but I think you know. I, now I've forgotten the question because I was doing a joke. Sorry. How is it moving the Newt needle? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, you know, I think what what. What 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 I was who I was hoping to talk to um, were people in the movement who support genuinely support the goals of you know police reform or abolition who genuinely support the transformation away from this settler colonial and white supremacist society, but who look at looting and rioting and think that's too far or I don't know or I feel uncomfortable or I don't understand why this happens. So the book isn't really pointed towards the people in the media who are going to hate it anyway because right. they want to defend property. Um, it's for people in the movement and people who are curious about the movement to think about the ways this tactic emerges and to push back against this knee-jerk and in my opinion anti-black 
response to looting, um, since looting has really, I, and I've traced this as a whole chapter, the final chapter in my book, um, looting has become a very effective dog whistle since the yeah. 60s. Um, and so I think that that trying to push back on that um, is was really important to me. Um, on that note, it was weird to see the that there was this moment where liberals, I think they were they were trying to balance, and even CNN to, to, to an extent, every day was like their message changed because it's like, well, we have to be pro-BLM. We know that now. Right. But this is really crazy. We don't know who's behind this. And then then came in like, well, we think that there might be some like foreign instigators mm -hmm. in the country mm -hmm. looting. Is there any evidence of that? I mean, do you have any... No, I mean, there's Knowledge. no there's no evidence. And and the outside agitator thing didn't even work that well because it was everywhere. Outside agitators is a pretty effective um, lie that goes all the way back to slavery. I trace this in my book um, in in the uh, on the plantation. Uh, slave owners would say, oh, the enslaved would be happy if only, you know, these these terrible people from the north didn't come and convince them they were real human beings. So the outside agitator myth has always been deeply, deeply racist and anti-black from its very beginnings. Um, I think it goes back further, actually. I think it even goes to colonial struggles. But anyway, um, so so this time the outside agitator didn't trip didn't work because the uprising was everywhere so it was really hard like where is there like a, a, a incredible antifa farm in nebraska where they're like sending out like planes full of soup or whatever it is you know um it's just not like it doesn't make any sense so so the outside agitator thing like they they, they tried that for a while it didn't really stick so then they, they turned to the white anarchist line right and the white anarchist line is a more complicated version of the outside agitator trope because it erases black anarchists it erases black radicals it implies that only white people are political actors while simultaneously imagining that only a certain kind of troublemaker um oh my god my cat is the worst she literally broke into the room okay um only a certain kind of troublemaker could possibly um could possibly like want to be doing this in the first place so like the white agitator line really um uh, the white, excuse me, the white anarchist line became sort of the, the outside agitator boogeyman. And we're seeing the New York Times reproduce that again. They just had another hit piece in their op-ed a few days ago. So it, it goes so, on. Yeah. I mean, with that being said, like there were definitely um, activists and leaders, community leaders, uh, black women in particular, like they were taking a stand. I, I saw several videos where they were calling out others for agitating and for looting and you know, like there was a strategy and they were like going away from the strategy and it was it was it was changing the conversation away from their agenda. I mean, this is natural, obviously, in, in movements. There's a lot of different organizations yeah. and, and folks out there. Um, I mean, do you do you buy into that, that like they have one strategy that they think is going to be very effective and the looters are canceling that strategy out or, or hurting it? Um, I'm not sure. Um, I, I believe them. I believe when they say that, that, that that's how they're experiencing it. Um, I don't think a strategy that looters could cancel out would be very effective, personally, um, especially considering this uprising started with three days of rioting and looting in Minneapolis that led to the burning down of a police precinct, and that direct action caused it to spread to the entire country. Um, so, so I'm not very sympathetic to the idea that, that looting and rioting hurts the movement, but I also want to speak, those are people I want to talk to and have a conversation with. Those are the people this book is for. It's like, like, I understand it. You're concerned about the movement. You want it to work. You want to win. And you think looting and rioting doesn't work. Um, and so my argument is, look, historically, there has never been a liberation movement that hasn't involved more direct attacks on property, on whiteness than just nonviolent protest and we can't control a movement 
in such a way where none of that can happen. It, it won't work and we won't win. That's the argument that I'm making. But it is to those people because I'm sympathetic and I understand that the, there are people who genuinely want to win who get frustrated in the street when they see this happening. So, so it's, it's in solidarity with them that I offer the critique. Um, you know, I, I, I wasn't in New York when the majority of like, the looting was happening um, during the George Floyd protests, and I was expecting to go back to the city in Manhattan and see, you know, Fifth Avenue stores, like, boarded up and spray paint. But it basically just looked like Fifth Avenue because these are very large companies that, like, three days later, went and cleaned up, put in new windows, could afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the arguments that I was hearing... Uh, in certain circles and in, in the New York Times, in the nation of all places, was this is really going to damage the economy. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the um, the goal. <laughs> um, it's OK. Hi, we're, we're a pet friendly um, show. OK, good. Yeah, it's quarantine. There's no controlling it. Um, <laughs> you can't. Um, my dog. Knocks, I'm just going to knock it over. So I'm actually going to take it. <laughs> Sorry, baby. Um, so yeah, I think uh, you know the 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 idea that it would damage the economy, the little bit of rioting, I think is 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 erroneous. Obviously, I mean, I think we saw that that it, it didn't. Um, but I think what they are scared about um, ultimately is that people would um, be able to reproduce their lives without having to go to work and without having to pay rent. That's the ultimate thing. That's the horizon that looting. Um, points towards and rioting, which is an idea that we would actually live outside of a capitalist economy, um, which our planet needs desperately. Not only do we need as individuals, not only do black people need for for liberation, not only do indigenous folks need for justice and for land back, but we need it because the planet is going to die. (laughs) Like It couldn't be more urgent that we live outside that economy. So when they talk about, oh, looting hurts the economy, they're not, it's not true in the immediate, um, although they may be thinking about in 77, the blackout looting in New York was used as an excuse by many business owners to not return to escape the city. That happened in Detroit in the 68 as well. A lot of people still blame the riots for destroying Detroit when the rest of the Rust Belt also went down in the same period. So it's a common trope. It's not really true that a riot that we have of the scope that we have seen can actually destroy the economy. Um, but I think they are right to be frightened that the horizon it points to is a city without an economy in which we live together in solidarity and, and, and flourishing. That's interesting. As we're, I mean, I've never thought about it from that perspective. New York is obviously facing a down economy. It's unemployment's at 16% right now in, in the city. And looking back, I'm, I'm curious to see if, if we make it through climate change. Uh, if 20 years from now, folks are going to blame it on on the uprisings rather mm. and, the, and the looting rather than the fact that people are moving out because COVID was, it's just, it's too hard to manage in so many different ways. Yeah. Um, Vicky, fascinating arguments. Uh, I think people are empowered. There's, there's a lot of ammunition here to fight back. Um, you know, you've definitely broken my brain a little bit and <laughs> hopefully we can have you on again soon. Yeah, my pleasure. I, I, you know, I, I live for breaking brains. So, you know, I'm, I'm so glad. <laughs> <laughs> I live to serve. Yeah. <laughs> Vicki Osterweil, uh, in defense of looting. There is a really great, uh, by the way, I just want to promote this. There's a really great interview with um, you in The New Yorker from September 3rd, just a few weeks ago. Uh, actually, it was a month ago now. I definitely urge people to check it out. We can put that that link in, in the um in the information section, because I thought you you were able to answer his questions very well. So oh, thank you. Yeah, that was uh, it was a bit of a surprise gotcha, but it, it went out okay. It went okay in the end. <laughs> you handled yourself well. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Up next, we have our Friday feminist panel with Jamie Pack, 
and the one and only Jamie Pack, who's like finishing up at Majority Report and coming on over here. And of course, Javanka Beckles, who is a council member in, a former council member in Northern California. We're gonna have a hearty conversation about building coalitions on the left. That's up next. show I'm this is um, my favorite panel of the week not that I don't love everybody else but it's very close to my heart uh, we're talking about Fem Fridays we have Jamie Pack who is a producer and contributor to the majority report and she's the co-host of the Antifada on patreon.com slash the Antifada is that correct that's right I got it I've heard enough I should know and Javanka Beckles a former council member in Richmond City she is a movement organizer and now she is a candidate for the AC Transit, transit workers, and, and a union leader, too, I should add. Nice. Thanks for coming back on, too. Um, so I, I want to talk about coalitions, but there are, listen, the, the COVID news is, like, too big. It's 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 just, it's, like, too much. And, and somewhere buried in all these stories about Trump and Melania having COVID uh, is the recordings that were leaked of Melania and I would love to hear your guys' reaction to this because I feel like they've they've saved this for their October surprise, not a, not knowing that the real October surprise is that they get COVID. Um, surprise! Surprise! Uh, Dorsey, can we show that clip of uh, the recording? Or part of the recording, at least. I'm the same like him. I support him. I don't no. say enough. I don't do enough. No. Where, where I am, I put the, I'm working like a, Ask my ass I know. the Christmas stuff that, you know, who gives a f about Christmas stuff and decoration, but I need to do it, right? Yeah, but correct. 100%. You have and no then, choice. And, okay, and then I do it, and I say that I'm working on Christmas, uh, planning for the Christmas, and they said, oh, what about the children that they were separated? Give me a break. Don't, where, where they were saying anything when Obama did that? I know. Do, do, I cannot go. I I was trying to get the, the kid reunited with the mom. I, I, I didn't have a chance. Needs to go through the process and through the law. But here's my thing. You hear what you just said. But instead of that, if if you just your messaging, you you were so loved. You they were. were not do the story. We put it out. They would not do the story. I'm telling you. They would not believe it. They mm. would not do the story because no, they no. are not. They would not do the story because they are, they are they are against us because they are liberal media. Yeah, if I go to Fox, they will do the story. I don't want to go to Fox. There's so much to unpack here. On one hand, I'm like kind of sympathetic to her because I'm just like this poor oppressed woman who like doesn't want to do Christmas, right? No, I'm saying there's two, there's a couple of things here. Come on, come on, come on. Patriarchy is like a real complicated thing, right? There's a woman who is like being held hostage and forced to do the Christmas stuff. I feel like you're like, don't, don't do that. And then she's brainwashed, but then she also knows Fox is like bullshit. So, <laughs> all right, Javanka, I can feel it. I can feel it in your veins. You're coming out of your oh, pores. Oh, gosh, uh, yeah. My, I don't know if you saw my mouth, my jaw dropped. I, I don't know why I'm still surprised by any of the comments that comes out of the White House uh, by this sitting president and uh, and his wife. But I'm still, my, my jaw is dropped. The, the, I mean, the, the amount of privilege and that, that she's experiencing and it, it just oozes out of her spirit is so disgusting. I can't, I can't even, I'm, I'm just like, I can't. Um, that 
that people, she's so oppressed that she has to do this Christmas uh, <laughs> celebration, um, you know, and oh my gosh. And, 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 and just talk about the oppression of her rather than all these, these children right. that are caged, that she was so minimized these types of travesty that's happening around her is just, yeah, it just, it blows my mind. I, I, I just can't even. <laughs> yeah. My goodness. Jamie, you're like immediately like, no, don't feel. Come on. You, if you were first lady, I mean, she it packaged together in a really weird way. But you wouldn't want to do Christmas decorations either, even if it is a privilege. You don't want to do that. I mean, honestly, if I'm being real, I kind of like Christmas decorations. This is one of my more conscious. <laughs> Telling me. Keep had. it real, Jamie. Keep it real. You're so um, basic, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I am Jewish. It's the whole thing. I enjoy Christmas. But um, if I'm being uh, if I'm being serious in a different way, um, I think that this shows really what the limits are of coalition building, because we here on the left, we all are fighting the war on Christmas, right? <laughs> you think that we would want any takers that we could possibly have in this fight. But I think what this tape from Melania shows is even in something as important as the war on Christmas, the enemy of my enemy is not necessarily my friend. <laughs> yeah. Boom. Yeah. Okay, panel over. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> so Javanga, you've actually like you've you've been in office and to go into coalition building, um, how do you on the left, like just just tactically? I mean, I don't know how many progressives were in the council with you, like actual progressives percentage wise. I'm guessing really small. How do you tactically push people into signing bills and and getting the votes needed when you know it's hard enough to get elected? What's your right. like number one tactic? Um, well, first of all, on the Richmond City Council at the time that uh, I was on, I was, uh, you know, had the honor of serving, uh, we had um, a majority of progressives. And it was because of that coalition building and, and knocking on doors that we were able to elect true progressive, true revolutionaries, as I like to say. Um, and it was because of that coalition building that we had a majority on, this, on the Richmond City Council and because of that, we we passed a uh, we were the first in the state to pass a fifteen dollar minimum wage. Uh, it was because of that coalition building and having a majority on the Richmond City Council that we were able to pass rent control, the first rent control policy in thirty years. It's Ooh. because of that coalition building and electing progressives and revolutionaries that we were able to pass uh, a policy that uh, that creates an automatic investigation when there is a, a incident of police shooting or abuse. So if, if a police roughs up someone, they ended up in a hospital because that was the case uh, in Richmond with a mentally ill person. Um, it's an automatic investigation. Before that, the families would have to, you know, in, in other, basically um, halt, halt their grief and focus to get uh, to, 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 to have a written appeal and complaint within, I think it was something like 30 days, something ridiculous. Um, and, and who has time when you're grieving? Who has time when you're trying to take care of family members? Uh, so this policy that, um, that I'm really proud of authored is an automatic investigation. Families don't have to worry about that. So you know, when we have these kinds of uh, policy uh, builders and movement builders, we can really have policies 
we can have laws that actually support the community and, and, and benefits the communities to improve the quality of life for them. Um, it was because of, of progressive revolutionaries on the Richmond City Council that we, we created the first Band the Box in the state of California. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, uh, let me keep you are aware of what the Band the Box policy is, yes. uh, but for those so the listeners who don't, may not know, uh, it's really, we call it the fairness in hiring. Uh, and, and what it does is it, 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 it takes away the question that uh, actually keeps people uh, oppressed who are re-entering our society from incarceration. And the majority of those people tend to be black and brown folk. And so by taking out, eliminating that question, people now have a, a fair chance of employment. And Richmond was the first one to do this. So I'm a, you know, I, I, I am a, a sort of, um, I'm a living example of what we as a coalition can do when we join forces, when we have a, a, a movement of a multiracial working class movement, uh, there's so much that we can do. So Jamie, um, that's coalition on the left. And one thing I think that we've seen in the last couple of years in particular, but not always, there's, there's some surprises, but I think, okay, what, what's happening is the establishment is seeing the left coming now. Yes. And you know, when AOC got elected, like they didn't pay attention to her, snuck, even her opponent didn't pay attention to her. And of course she won, even though the vote count wasn't even that high. It was a very low turnout election. But moving forward, the Jamal Bowmans of the world, um, there are these like left side coalitions. I'm not even going to say full left because, you know, they might be endorsed by DSA, but there are also some institutional organizations that lean progressive, but like take corporate money, for instance, that are, are backing them. And that seems to be like what's getting folks elected. But like, at what point is it too much to compromise? Well, that's a really good question. I don't pretend to have all of the answers to that. Um, I could see why um, people like DSA would want to build coalitions with groups that maybe have more money than them and can fund their campaigns. Um, at the same time, you know, there is a reason why corporations give money to groups in the first place. Uh, they want to have control over what kind of legislation gets introduced, what kind of legislation gets passed. So uh, I think we need to be strategic, but also we need to be careful and we need to be looking to because right the the motto is you know they've got money we've got people right we need to be looking away from the money and towards the people to provide that kind of support that um you know money can't buy that kind of grassroots support sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but like i would really like to see uh, dsa and their candidates looking more towards um grassroots groups and radical groups abolitionist groups like um, no new jails yeah. and other groups that exist in the in the left grassroots ecosystem rather than the NGO industrial complex. Well said, NGO. And, you know, listen, in New York, like if there's a place and California's the same way, if there are places, uh, there are a lot of people in New York, there's a lot of diversity of opinions in New York on the left and a lot of money in New York. Um, and so it's it's. It, they're remnants of the machine left. And, you know, Tammany Hall was leftist. It's hard for a lot of folks to believe that. It it got jobs for immigrants. It fought back against, like, the, the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts. I mean, that was their whole goal, was to get more immigrants in office. And with that also came machine politics, right? But we're seeing some of that kind of on the left now in New York in particular, where 
DSA, I think what's happening is people are like, oh, okay, this is how we're winning. We're all we're all going to join this party now, or we're going to do this, you know, join this organization. And people aren't pausing and saying, wait, wait, why do? And and they're using the organizations are using DSA's manpower to take credit for these wins. So I guess like I mean these are really critical and tough questions to ask because if you're a candidate running right now, I mean and you want to push forward your ideas, control your campaign, bring in movement people, why would you say no to some of these institutional organizations? Javonka, let's go with you because you, you've done this personally. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I love my DSA comrades. I love those revolutionaries. Uh, and, I, and I know personally just in, in the Bay Area, um, DSA East Bay has been, you know, really uh, uh, taking a fundamental part in this campaign. Uh, for AC Transit, and and I know that that coalition building with groups like the Richmond Progressive Alliance and and other revolutionary organizations have really played a big part in electing uh, true progressives and true revolutionaries in in, uh, in the East Bay. And and part of that uh, the campaign, part of what really sets uh, DSA East Bay and the Richmond Progressive Alliance and uh, the Berkeley Progressive Alliance and and, and, and organizations like that, you know, is, is the commitment to uh, a corporate free uh, pledge. And, you know, and so every campaign that I, I've been a part of uh, has been corporate free. And, and that's the pledge that I will continue to live by. And I really appreciate uh, DSA uh, also taking on that pledge. And so, you know, I, I can't speak to what's happening in New York, but I can speak to what's happening in the East Bay. And, yeah. and I do see that that's been one of the primary goals is to have candidates that are not taking any corporate money. It's hard. Like it's it's I think a lot of folks aren't really actually looking. It's it's not easy to go through filings, especially if it's not national. So yeah. folks may not even know. But it's, it's possible and it's possible. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think that we are an example of, of how of that possibility of not taking corporate money and not dealing with. Uh, organizations that are taking corporate money. We've done it in Richmond. We're doing it here again in the East Bay. Uh, and it's possible because now, although with COVID, it's, you know, things are different. We, we you know, we, we're not able to go out and knock on doors and have that, you know, those boots on the ground type of campaign strategies. But, um, but holding on to the integrity of the no corporate money, I think is incredibly significant and something that I'm proud of. And I'm proud of the organizations that I belong to, including East Bay DS, uh, DSA. Um, that have really committed to that that pledge. That's awesome, Jamie. I mean, what do you think? Is it going back to that question about um, you're running for office? You're you've got all these coalition groups, um, you know, activist groups on the ground, uh, and then non corporate funded activist groups, and then a, a bigger organization comes in and says, "We want to support you too," but mm-hmm. they may not. You know, they may appear left, but may not be taking some corporate money. What would you yeah. do? I mean, I don't think that electoral politics are really worth engaging in if we can't do it in a way that holds on to our principles. And um, one of the things that will help us to do that is building independent working class institutional power outside of the Democratic Party, outside of organized labor. Like, I'm a very pro-organization person. I've definitely moved. I've gotten a little less... uh, anarchist in my old age um i'm still like somewhat anarchist adjacent don't worry guys but um 
like the my my caucus emerged just released a, an article about what the party is and what the party is supposed to do because i feel like a lot of the time people get caught up on the party as a ballot line or the party is something that only runs candidates when you know the more uh the, the more leftist definition of a party, I mean, people have different definitions, but it, it's basically an explicitly political organization that serves to stitch together all of these different struggles and cohere a vision um, with and as a working class organizer or folks with socialist or even communist politics. Uh, I mean, the Black Panther Party is actually a really good example of a party that did a lot of the things a party is supposed to do, right? Um, they provided for people's material needs with things like lunch programs. They provided for people's intellectual needs with things like political education. And the leaders of the party were always available. They were always available to whoever wanted to talk to them about stuff. And that is so, so important. So, you know, obviously there are going to be differences between um, various form party formations that we've seen in the past and what might be appropriate for this historical juncture. It might not be a single party. It might be a federation of parties, you know, mm -hmm. because this country is so vast and so diverse and there are going to be different groups springing up that are led by different sorts of folks, but who have interests in common. But um, it, getting back to electoral politics, it is really hard to map something like a socialist project onto the system that we currently have. And I think that's part of why we have such a big succession problem on the left right now, because it is so rare that you're going to find someone who is a socialist and who believes in uh, socialist ideas, even wants to overthrow the capitalist system on the one hand, but also is willing to jump through all the hoops and has all the qualities that would make you a good candidate within the very dumb system that we have right now. So, you know, TLDR, it's complicated, but best case scenario, I think um, we can run candidates when it makes sense to do so. And uh, hopefully they help to spread class consciousness to everybody in the country. And maybe they'll be able to get some wins that make the working class fight from a stronger position. So so once folks do get elected, I mean, in, in New York um, and, and, and in the Bay Area, thank God, you guys have been able to have big wins. Um, you know, we're nowhere near that in the in New York, uh, even though we're supposed to be, a, you know, super majority state. We're not at all. Um, but there are a couple of socialists that are going into the assembly go, that are in the Senate, a couple in the council, New York City Council. But they got to build coalitions internally like <sighs> There's a lot of pressure. I mean, you may not be able to rise up into leadership. You may not be on a good committee. You may not even be able to speak at a hearing. And so the the leadership will do all that they can. I mean, we see with AOC, she's just got such a great platform that she has a lot of leverage. But most folks don't when they when they get elected locally. They don't have that kind of movement leverage to come in and be like, all right, try to silence me. I'll get my nine million Twitter followers to attack you. Um, so how do you how do you carry that balance? See, that's where that's why I think that that's why coalition building is so important um, because it's never going to be about one individual. Um, as with Bernie, it was never about Bernie. Uh, it was all about us and and our movement, our working class movement. Um, because even once we get into office, yes, there are going to be lots of pushback against a lot of the different policies that we're we're trying uh, to push through. But but that's where the movement comes uh, that that's behind us and 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 mm -hmm. and. 
know, are, are, are demanding and fighting. And, you know, there's so many different campaigns. Of course, there's the campaigns on the streets. There are campaigns, uh, letter writing campaigns. There's a phone call, you know, calling campaigns to push the others, especially if they're interested in reelection, um, to do the right thing. And, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but, but it's never about the one elected official doing all of it. Um, by by herself or by by himself, and so um, that's why I love this. I love this this movement uh, for Black Lives. I love because it's really it's an intersectional movement. Uh, uh, you know, I'm a black woman. Uh, I'm a lesbian. I'm an immigrant. I'm a mother, grandmother. So, you know, there's so much about me um, that is black, and that it encompasses all of those issues that we're fighting for on the street. Right? So I'm a working class person, I'm a union member, and I believe that you know, we have this working class movement of working people, and, and I do believe that unions play a big part in that because we are the people, we are the ones creating the profit, um, that, that our voices will matter when we push and fight. And yeah, and, 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 and money, of course, is, is key to that, um, is key to, to helping create the message oftentimes uh, so I'm really proud in this race to be to be endorsed by so many unions um, because these are working class people who know what it feels like to be struggling and uh, have to decide between rent and food and how do I you know move from A to to, to B um, and so so yeah absolutely no it's not it's not ever going to be about one person one leader and that's that's so cool because this movement has no leadership it's all about us. Right. And it's very hard to pinpoint when there is a leader uh, because they can't come and attack just one person. It's just too That's many right. of them. <laughs> Unless you're Trump and then it's COVID strikes. And then um, before before we wrap up, I, I want to have like a little bit of a moment of Zen. Um, this clip has been making the rounds. Jamie, you're in it. Uh, it's a clip of Michael Brooks when oh. Bolsonaro <laughs> got COVID. Um, can we play that clip, Dorsey? Morrow tested positive. <laughs> I see it in a tweet from a verified account. It's translated. So let's, you know, let's confirm that. But that's very, that's very exciting. Oh, man. Yeah. And it looks like apparently Bertrand Washington Post. Yeah, this is. And he just had dinner with Trump. <laughs> Hell yeah. You know, it's good to get some good news once in a while. There's always silver linings. Well, whoever knew that so much good could have come out of Mar-a-Lago? <laughs> Dirtbag MLK. Fingers crossed. <laughs> we may be living in hell world, but no one said the comedy was bad. Oh shit, yo, they hugged. <laughs> we should pull up that video of them in Mar a Lago before we go. We really are in uncharted waters right now. <laughs> of course, this is when Michael thought Donald Trump got COVID and you gotta laugh. You gotta laugh. You know, I always say my parents taught me, you know, if you have nothing good to say, don't say it. Don't laugh at people's, you know, bad 
but hey, you know, you, hey, karma is a bitch. Mm -hmm. That's the thing, right? Denying, huh? It's legitimately funny that it happened in this way. It's 30 Poetic days before the election. 30 days. He's got to be quarantined for two weeks. It's poet. It's just logic, too. I mean, they want to deny logic. Well, then fine. Logic is not going It's going to sneak up on them. It just right. cause and effect. You are not you're not immune to cause and effect as wealthy as you are. And that's what's so beautiful about this moment. That's right. And just like when you deny climate change and it hits you and your home is burned or your right. family is washed out, it seems like that's the only time these folks believe what's going on. And so, yeah, you don't believe that COVID is real and you want to deny it. Now it hits you. Oh, yeah. Wow. Justice. Poetic justice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these ghouls often recover from it. Unfortunately, Boris Johnson recovered from it. Bolsonaro, or as I like to call him, Bolsarona, has had it like 67 times. But, you know, one of them has to go eventually, right? And Trump is, um, I mean, look, Herman Cain died of the virus, right? And he was probably, he was definitely younger than Trump, probably in better physical shape than Trump. So, you know, this might be one instance where his insane wealth and privilege can't necessarily protect him from the consequences of his actions. My question is, will his family have to pay his taxes afterwards? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, they th that is the least that they deserve. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> mm, okay. All right, guys, thank you uh, for joining. This was an awesome panel. Just always a pleasure having you on. Enjoy your weekends. Uh, we'll be watching the quarantine. Like, I'm sure there's going to be news coming out. I don't know if they're taking his phone away from him. I would say they should, but then who knows? Maybe he'll say something. Who knows what will happen? Who knows? No. This I'm is the upside cool. to living in crazy dumb world right now, guys. We've only seen the bad stuff, but now, like, you know, once in a while, something crazy dumb and good might happen. <laughs> yes. Um, Javanka, if, if folks want to help out on your campaign, where do they go? They go to Javanka, uh, Javanka for AC Transit. And uh, you can just you can just even Google my name, Javanka Beckles, and it will come right up. And uh, we can use all the help that we can get in this movement for the people, transit for the people. We can have a fair free system when we tax the wealthy. So uh, yes, Javanka, Javanka for AC Transit or just Javanka Beckles and it'll come right up. Fantastic. And what's new on the Antifada, Jamie? Oh, well, this week on the Antifada, we have two a two-part History is a Weapon, which is uh, Sean's history series that he does with Matt Crispin from Chapo Trap House. This one is very topical. It's all about QAnon and the political economy. Wait, don't say it. Don't theories. say it. Don't say it. We didn't say that. We didn't say it. Oh, what? we went the whole show without saying it. <laughs> saying QAnon? They, uh... <laughs> YouTube oh. don't like it. <laughs> YouTube don't like it. <laughs> oh, my bad. Well, patreon.com yeah. slash the antifada. <laughs> uh, That's where you can hey, say it. Uh, hey, 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 no, also, yeah, it, it just, just to be uh, specific, it's uh, javanka4actransit.com. Perfect. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you all. And Javanka is also on the board of advisors of Matriarch Pack. We're doing a summit. We haven't, I, I guess today is when we're publicly announcing it. We're doing a big summit on October 30th. Um, stay tuned. We're going to put some information up so you can check it out. It's going to be three hours of radical feminists talking about how we're going to take over the world. Yes. Basically. They say we do it behind the scenes. No. <laughs> Hell yeah.
Hell yeah. All right, guys. Special shout outs to Professor Harvey K in the chat. Loves chatting it up. It's awesome. And Billy Big Bricks, who's the moderator, and everyone in the chat room. Loving you, ladies. They're, like, loving it. Um, And... Uh, have a nice weekend. Bob the Mod, thank you. Who else? Dorsey, am I missing any? I'm reading a little chat on the side if you guys are wondering what I'm doing. Rye, okay, another one. <laughs> I can't see the chat live. See, the great thing about Jamie being part of the show of of Majority Report is you guys are all talking back and forth, but Dorsey never wants to come on and talk with me. <laughs> Maybe we can peer pressure him. Anyways, thank you to everybody for tuning in. Have a wonderful weekend. If you're not a patron, go to patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. We're preparing for some new fun stuff. We need your support for it. Uh, you're going to like it, I promise, and we will announce it next week. Have a great weekend. <laughs>